Hello, and welcome back to Genderator. I'm your host, Jennifer San Filippo. We just heard a clip of the equal pay chant at the Women's World Cup. You guessed it. In this episode, we talk about the pay gap. The subject is quite timely. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal reminds us that deadline looms for pay disclosure. It goes on to say that all employers with more than 100 workers must disclose a broad array of pay information to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission by September 30th. As a government agency, I wonder if they're required to make that body of information public. I mean, seriously, can you imagine? I remember when New York State posted all public employee salaries as part of a transparency effort. I think the site crashed within an hour. That information sharing will be sure to press the pay gap issue in workplaces across America. It's a good time to hash out what the pay gap is, talk about the gray areas, and explore the myths and facts. To dig into these questions, I'm joined today by Catherine Farrow, Assistant Director of the Susan B. Anthony Center at the University of Rochester. She's going to walk us through some of these issues. If you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard here, please go to my website for more information and the opportunity to comment. That's www.genderator.com. And that's Genderator with a J. Thank you. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Jennifer. I'm really, really glad to be here. I wanted to talk a little bit about the Susan B. Anthony Center where you work. Um, there's in Rochester, New York, there's a Susan B. Anthony house. Yes. There's the Susan B. Anthony Center. Then, of course, very close by, we have Seneca Falls. And I think a lot of people get all those different entities mixed up. So what can you tell us about the Susan B. Anthony Center? Well, I can tell you there's one more Susan B. Anthony place that you missed, which is the Susan B. Anthony Institute, also at the University of Rochester, which is an academic arm. And what we are at the Susan B. Anthony Center is an organization focused on social justice issues Mm -hmm. and human rights. Mm -hmm. So we work locally, we work nationally, and we work internationally. Mm -hmm. And one of the areas that we work on is equal pay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Thank you. So um, what is, when you say you do work locally, nationally, internationally, what kind of work is it? Is it lectures? Is it advocacy? Is it providing analytics? It's actually a mixture of all of those things. Mm -hmm. We do some research, which we then try to disseminate. But essentially, we are a think tank Mm -hmm. on issues Mm -hmm. and working together working to bring together perspectives from a variety of different areas. Mm -hmm. So on the equal pay, we look at it from an intersectional issue, Mm -hmm. looking at issues of the way race and ethnic background combine to create inequities around pay Mm -hmm. um, for men and for women, Mm -hmm. um, looking at ways that women are systematically affected by equal pay issues. Mm -hmm. Um, We also work pretty extensively on LGBTQ issues Mm -hmm. and did, um, for example, um, a really large survey on uh, transgender health issues in the region. Mm -hmm. Transgender people often uh, are in a situation of not having healthcare providers who can address their unique health needs. And so we look to see in Western New York how many 
transgender people there are and what are some of the health and mental health issues that they're facing, for example. And then we would try to disseminate that through training, through mm -hmm. conferences, through um, op-eds, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Oh, that's interesting, and it's exceptionally valuable, especially well, it, now. It's really important. Um, there are people doing good work all over the place, but how to synthesize that mm -hmm. so that the people who are the most vulnerable are getting the help that they need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how do you differ from the Institute? The Institute is an academic arm and they are focused more on operating as part of the undergraduate or um, the River Campus mm -hmm. at the University of Rochester. And they are interested in some of the same social justice issues uh, coming out of the Institute is the Incarceration Project, which has mm -hmm. gotten a lot of publicity and, and also is working to bring together from people from different areas to address the problem of uh, poor people, disadvantaged people, people of color being unfairly incarcerated and the way our culture um, locks them away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the center where I work is kind of uniquely placed in that we are not attached to either the River Campus or the Medical Center, but that we're under the office of the president. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at these issues from both sides of the street, as yeah. we call it, on the campus. Yeah. And um, it also gives us a position to be able to do some of our um, national or international work. Neat. So what kind of uh, organizations reach out to you and for information or for training or to come speak at conferences? Well, we're really kind of flipped in that sense, in that we are generating conferences. We are reaching out to organizations. Um, we do work with a group um, a consortium of social justice groups in the local Rochester area. Mm -hmm. And we're working on a series of talks called um, Civil Discourse uh, Civic Action mm -hmm. and focused on a different issue each year. Mm -hmm. So um, this current year, we're working on the issue of subsidized childcare. Mm -hmm. There's an article out in the Democrat and Chronicle mm -hmm. uh, just today mm -hmm. that paying for childcare is more expensive in New York State than paying for college. And for many people, this is an enormous problem for disadvantaged people trying to get a access to subsidized daycare so that they can improve their lives, improve their children's lives, mm -hmm. have a good job. Uh, gain education, doing all that while paying such a high proportion of a very low income on mm. childcare is is a, an um, unbearable burden, and this has become part of the national discourse. In that, um, Elizabeth Warren has introduced the Universal Child Care Bill mm -hmm. as one of um, her proposals uh, as a senator, and it's based on a very a successful program that the military operates mm -hmm. um, where childcare is available at affordable rates. So mm -hmm. we have a model that shows this works and we have the science that shows how essential the birth to three period is in terms of properly developing human brains mm -hmm. and human development. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a Harvard consortium that is doing an incredible job of 
transmitting the science behind their discoveries. Mm -hmm. And now people, and they're working with people to put policy into place Mm -hmm. so that instead of people thinking birth to three is unimportant and we'll just let the babies, you know, be in whatever situation we're in, we understand that in order to have really well-functioning societies, we need to have well-cared-for children. Mm -hmm. And providing positive, really well-structured early child care Mm -hmm. can transform lives. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, it's a great example of what we do. So Mm -hmm. we've looked at the science that's come in on the importance of child care. We look at the policy needs. Mm -hmm. We look at the inequities that people are facing Mm -hmm. and try to bring all those things together and present it to the public in a way that can help them uh, become motivated and activated to mm-hmm. take um, to take action on mm-hmm. these issues, or at the very least, to inform people yeah. about the issue. The center has a tremendous body of work. There's different uh, looks at marginalized populations and how they're affected by the pay gap, um, by other social justice issues. Yes, we are working all the time to improve how we put all our research together so it's available to the public. And how can they access it? They can look up the Susan B. Anthony Center. Mm-hmm. We're at the University of Rochester, and you are. Um, we would love to have you come and visit our website. But another great way to keep up with the issues that we are working to disseminate all the time is through social media. Mm-hmm. On Twitter, you can find us at the Susan B. Anthony Center. Our handle is UR underscore SBAC. And uh, every day we are sending out information articles, links to information, and links to our research on many, many of these topics. And we're also on Facebook, and you can find us um, at the Susan B. Anthony Center there, too. So that brings us to the work that you've been doing with the pay gap. Before we talk about the analytics and the statistics, why is it an important topic? That is a great question. And I think at the heart of the pay gap, is discrimination. Mm -hmm. And this is discrimination that cuts in a few different ways. Mm -hmm. One of the ways is on gender Mm -hmm. lines. So people are just, women are discriminated in the pay gap Mm -hmm. um, in terms of pay. Right now, the typical American woman can expect to make about 80% of what a man makes. Mm -hmm. But discrimination also runs along race and ethnic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so you can see pay discrimination gets complicated by these intersectionalities. Mm -hmm. So women of color have even greater pay gaps. So when we look at the question of unequal pay, we are really looking at the a kind of demonstrable graph of discrimination that's happening in our culture. One of the things I really want to do in this conversation is to say to people who feel that the gender pay gap is not valid is to address some of those concerns Mm -hmm. and say, let's really unpack what those issues are Mm -hmm. and see what the research tells us. And there are two economists, Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn, who wanted to look at the pay gap Mm -hmm. and to see what can we take out What can we say that um, would attribute 
to this difference in pay. Mm -hmm. So they looked at differences in education. Mm -hmm. They looked at difference in work experience. They looked at differences in career choice, kind of mm -hmm. the same exact thing that we're looking at. And they found out that they could pick out 60% of those factors as contributing to the pay gap. Mm -hmm. And that leaves 40% that they find unexplained by any other factor. And their conclusion is, is it can only be caused by discrimination. Mm -hmm. And if you look at this in terms of African-American women, where there's not only an issue of gender discrimination, but racial discrimination, there was a key longitudinal study that is a study over a number of years that showed only one-fifth of the racial pay gap between black women and white women could be explained by any difference in education or work experience. Mm -hmm. Which means that 80%, mm -hmm. four-fifths of that racial pay gap could only be attributed to discrimination. Mm -hmm. So it's an issue that affects people on a lot of different levels. And from my perspective, blindly saying everything's due to discrimination isn't the answer. Mm -hmm. But a large part of the answer is saying discrimination is at play. Mm -hmm. It's at play in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. And we need to address that mm -hmm. as a root cause. And how to go about changing that mm -hmm. is an entirely different conversation. Right. But not addressing the fact that discrimination exists is a problem. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the pay gap issue and we work to figure out how to eliminate it, mm -hmm. we have to confront really huge issues mm -hmm. that are seismic mm -hmm. in our culture. Mm -hmm. Issues of discrimination against women and discrimination on the basis of race or ethnic background. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there, that's why there is a good amount of pushback when especially when um, equal pay day comes up often someone like the Wall Street Journal will have an op-ed saying that it's it's a false narrative or the the statistics used are, are not comparing apples to apples and there's a lot of gray areas that that like to get picked at do you think it's because people don't like to talk about discrimination or that people don't want to actually do pay gap studies in their organizations. What do you think? I think that kind of pushback comes from a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. And I think the most visceral one of those is that most people feel like they're not getting theirs, right? Mm -hmm. that initially they think, oh no, mm -hmm. I would give to someone else, but I'm not getting what I feel I deserve mm -hmm. already. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very human emotion. Mm -hmm. And and I hadn't really thought about why it would be so important to address that. But I think that's really a key thing. Mm -hmm. The other reason why I think these articles get traction or why people feel this way is that there's a line of thinking that says, I worked hard for what I got. And these other people who aren't making as much as I am haven't worked as hard as I have. Mm -hmm. And as we go through the conversation, I, I, I can tell you some of that is not true, mm -hmm. right? That some of this is 
basically it comes straight down to discrimination. Mm -hmm. But we have this myth in American culture, and it really comes out of the industrial north, mm -hmm. this idea that it, you can pick yourself up by the bootstraps. Mm -hmm. And what we have is a kind of false proof of that, mm -hmm. which is that in some occasions, it's possible for a rare exception mm -hmm. to pick him or herself up by their bootstraps and come from a very poor background and become successful. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the vast majority of people, if you come from a place of deprivation and poverty, you are most likely going to stay in deprivation and poverty. And mm -hmm. if you come from a place of entitlement and wealth, then you're very likely to stay in that place of entitlement and wealth. Mm -hmm. And for the people who have money and come from an entitled place, it's helpful to kind of spread this myth that, well, I got here because of my hard work and other people didn't get here because of their lack of hard work. Mm -hmm. And they trot out the exception and falsely portray it as the rule. Mm -hmm. And so some of that comes into play mm -hmm. with these ideas about um, the gender pay gap being um, made up or mm -hmm. that the statistics are distorted. And as we go through our conversation, we can talk about some of the ways that, well, you know, we might be addressing comparing apples and oranges here, but let's talk about really comparing apples to apples and the discrimination is still there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the um, idea that women tend to choose lower paying jobs or fields or careers, that's one of those ideas that is presented when, when the pay gap issue comes up. What do you say to that? Well, I would say there's some validity to that claim, mm -hmm. but it's a more complex issue than just women are choosing lower paying careers. Mm -hmm. So let's take a look at Iceland, which is a country that has the smallest pay gap in the world and the greatest percentage of gender equity, according to UN figures. They have been unable to completely eliminate the pay gap. They're wondering why. Mm -hmm. We are throwing everything we can at solving this problem, but there's about a 10% pay gap. And one of the things they consider is that women choose, sometimes do choose lower paying careers. Mm -hmm. But let's think about that for a second. So one of the things that happens, and numerous studies have confirmed this, is that if women move into a field in large numbers, the pay and the prestige of that field tends to immediately go down. Mm -hmm. So secretaries is a great example. If you think about the secretary of state or the secretary of foreign affairs, you have an idea of the origin of that word. This was typically a male post, very high ranking, an aide of the most powerful people in government, mm -hmm. and someone who was uh, trustworthy enough to be I'm given access to all the secrets, mm -hmm. the secretary. Mm -hmm. And after World War II, women moved into this position in really great numbers. Mm -hmm. And what happened? The pay plummeted. The prestige plummeted. Mm -hmm. The meaning of that word completely changed. And the treatment of the people in that position completely changed. Mm -hmm. So that's one example. Isn't it interesting that... Um that happens, and over time, the, the title has changed. 
So we, we no longer call them secretaries at profession. We refer to it as executive assistants. And anybody knows if you want to get something done or if you need to reach the most powerful person, you have to have a very good relationship with the executive assistant. That relationship is crucial. So the title changed to make it sound more prestigious. substantial, prestigious, yes. But I don't know that the pay has... And now they're talking about the idea that a chief of staff is coming back as uh, a chief of staff is something, I, from my government background, was something that usually only elected officials had or government entities, the higher up, had a chief of staff for, the, for their operation. And I was reading an article about how more uh, corporate types are looking for chiefs of staff. And when really, it's the executive assistant who actually, in those positions, acts as chief of staff. You know, that is the person that knows every everything that's going on that's affecting their boss. They know everything that's going on in the organization, and they often know how things need to get done. And so it's just fascinating how, you know, why don't you just take your executive assistant and make her the chief of staff? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And what happens is this bias, this mm-hmm. cultural bias that we have, that says if a man is doing this job, then it must be important and it must be well paid. Mm. And if a woman's doing this job, then we can devalue her, we can devalue the job, and we can devalue her pay. Mm -hmm. You know, another example of women going into lower paid professions is childcare. Mm -hmm. Circling around is something that we talked about earlier, right? We now know that in order to have a functioning healthy society, we need to have functioning, healthy children, Mm -hmm. and that taking care of them extremely well in that birth to three period is essential. Mm -hmm. But because women have traditionally done this work, and we are a uh, culture that disparages women and disparages women's work, Mm -hmm. then a childcare worker makes close to the poverty level, Mm -hmm. rarely has vacation, rarely has benefits, rarely has vacation time. These things are not part of their pay. But in comparison, a man who works on cars, which is objectively less important than taking care of children, how much more money do those men make than the women who are doing other work? It comes down to a question of what we as a culture value. Mm-hmm. So if a woman decides she wants to go into social work or into teaching because those align with her values of what is important, we say she's choosing a less lucrative profession, but she's not necessarily choosing a less important profession. Mm-hmm. She's choosing a profession that our culture values less. Mm-hmm. Women, when they try to go into very lucrative, high-paying professions, they are hired less often. Mm -hmm. They are given lower salaries when they do, and they often face harassment when they get there. Mm -hmm. So you can think about the bro culture of venture capitalists, the bro culture of Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. um, film. Mm -hmm. All of these are very high-paying areas. Also, the financial Mm -hmm. sector. Mm -hmm. So when women try to get in, those gates are shut and they're not having equal treatment when when they get inside. So what is the answer? It's starting to get a little uh, discouraging. And when you think of young women who are trying to 
get ahead, where do they get a leg up if they're doing equal work? Is it regulatory only? Or I know that certain corporations have made pledges, like I want to say um, Bank of America, I think, Wells Fargo, they had made pledges to close their pay gap. That's encouraging. And then New York State had passed, I don't know if it's for the whole state, but certainly in New York City, you're not no longer able to ask a potential candidate for hire what they made prior. Yes. You know, so on the regulatory scale, that helps a little bit. I think those are advances. And I want to say that some advances have been made. Mm-hmm. So right now, the average woman is looking at making 20% less than a man. Mm -hmm. But a young woman who's graduating from college has a 10% pay gap. So there has been some narrowing. And education does help. But I want to circle back around to what we talked about earlier, that people say, oh, you have to get the education. You need to get the training. You need to get the job experience. A college-educated woman makes less than a man with an associate's degree. For Native American women, the more education they get, the greater the pay gap. Mm -hmm. Um, A black woman with a college degree typically makes less than the average man with a high school degree. But are we talking about same jobs or just generally speaking in the workplace? Generally speaking in the workplace. But if we're going to look at very specific apples to apples. Women working as physicians or surgeons make 66% of what men working as physicians or surgeons make. Mm -hmm. So what I want to emphasize, which numerous studies have confirmed, is that when you adjust for education, for experience, for the industry, Mm -hmm. there is still a pay gap, which is based on discrimination. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to address that. Mm -hmm. Um, Education does help. Asian American women who are um, typically highly educated in certain sectors, they have the highest salaries as an aggregate of all women. Mm -hmm. But compared to Asian American men, they still make 78 cents to the dollar. Mm -hmm. So we are looking at systemic discrimination based on gender that's exacerbated by race and ethnic background. Mm -hmm. And in order to change this, we have to look at the fact that we have these biases. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the key things that has to happen. Mm -hmm. We have to really rip the covers off our eyes. And the people who are thinking, but wait, I'm not getting my fair share, Mm -hmm. need to somehow be educated Mm -hmm. about what it means for these kinds of pay gaps to accumulate over someone's lifetime. Mm -hmm. For the average American woman, she's looking at a loss of more than Mm $700,000 over her lifetime. For Latina women, it's $1.1 million. And when you start to think of the life cycle and the fact that women over the age of 65 have a poverty rate of 11%, whereas men over the age of 65 have a poverty rate of 6%. And then women are outliving men, so by the time women are 85 years old, it's a, there's a 2 to 1 ratio, female to male. So 
if you look at the sort of the back end and you've worked your whole life and you have this deficit, your ability to take care of yourself in your later years without needing to rely on any kind of public system thins out quickly. And that balance in pay, had you been making what your male peers had been making, could sustain you more fully, more healthfully, more meaningfully into your later years. Absolutely. But then there's just the regular day-to-day for back to the daycare worker. How is that woman supporting her family? How is that woman day-to-day able to make sure that she is helping her kids with their homework because she doesn't need two jobs because the the daycare job doesn't pay enough and the other job doesn't pay enough and how is she putting food on the table and how is how are those families able to get out of poverty and pass down some kind of wealth or chance or opportunity to their kids well you you really nailed it right this is the way that systemic inequalities are transmitted generation to generation. Mm -hmm. And this is why when people say, why doesn't she just pull herself up from her bootstraps? That person hasn't has no understanding Mm -hmm. of how difficult it actually is. Because she doesn't have any bootstraps to pull on. Or maybe not even any boots. And she's flip flops. (laughs) And she's just too darn tired to make it up to the next level. She's in survival mode. But addressing the pay gap does amazing things. One of the things that we tweeted about on the 2018 Equal Pay Day, which was April 10th in, in 2018, that's the day the typical woman has to work extra to catch up to what a man worked in the previous year and what a man earned the previous year were these statistics about what a woman could do if the pay gap were addressed, how many months of childcare it would pay for, how many months of rent or mortgage it would pay for, how many years of community college or state tuition it would cover. Mm-hmm. These are things that are really important to address. And we live in a, an American society where the gap between the haves and the have-nots has continued to widen. Mm-hmm. And if we don't take active steps to address this, mm-hmm. then we're going to have people who are understandably angry and upset. Mm-hmm. Gender stereotypes, biases, implicit biases, that is, that is lifelong work. It involves you know, self-awareness and critical thinking and, and some personal admissions and getting over sort of that fragility of, of, of not seeing that these issues exist because it threatens who you think you are as a person. But there is some low-hanging fruit back to the regulatory bodies, just having pay gap analyses in your own company, making those kinds of pledges to take a look at what you're paying your people. And it's been done repeatedly. In fact, my inaugural interview was with a bank president, a small bank up in um, the North Country, Oswego, New York. Sorry, Oswego, I know you're not the North Country, but you're on your way there. did a pay gap analysis and closed his pay, and, and he said he was embarrassed. I had a pay gap. I had to close it. Even something like business schools often tout that they have women's groups now, um, women students who come together to talk about issues. I wonder if those women groups in turn ask their universities if they've done pay analyses, even just asking the question and getting that conversation started. I look at that as low-hanging fruit. 
I think that's a really essential place to start. And one of the things I feel we're working on at the Susan B. Anthony Center is disseminating this information, right? Mm -hmm. Because that bank president got the awareness somehow that he or she needed to address this, to look at it, mm -hmm. and was surprised to find out that they had a pay gap, mm -hmm. and then took steps to address it. People have power to do this. And one of the first things is understanding that there is an issue, mm -hmm. accepting that you might have a, a part in that, and then taking action to see what you can do to change it. Mm -hmm. But I loved what you said about women's advocacy groups mm -hmm. coming together. And um, just as an example, there's the American Academy of Medical Colleges has a group on looking on gender equity for women. And so these are, a lot of them are young female researchers in the medical world who are really focused on what are the best practices that medical schools and universities and hospitals can take in order to address the pay gap and um, to create gender equity. And I love the idea of women coming together and talking because I'm going to circle around to something that we talked about earlier, which is that childcare is undervalued work in our culture, that we think of it as, you know, something that women do and unimportant. And mm -hmm. we've established that the science says this is enormously critical and important work for our society as a whole. Mm -hmm. So women still do more of childcare and they still do more housework than men. So women who are trying to achieve equity in their careers are also carrying more of a burden, mm -hmm. which is that they're more likely to be the ones thinking about getting the homework done or making sure that their kids get to this after school event or that doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. And so how to create the work-life balance, the flexibility that allows this important work that women are doing more of to be recognized as mm -hmm. important. Because the other huge assumed condition that we are operating under is this idea of, or the myth of the ideal worker. Mm -hmm. And maybe it'll just explode people's minds to think, oh, that's the myth, that's the assumption. But it's based on typically a man mm -hmm. who's available at any hour of the day mm -hmm. to show up for the 7 a.m. breakfast meeting or to stay late to take the clients out or who's available to travel mm -hmm. on extended business. And that person, presumably a man, is able to do that because there's an invisible woman at home who is doing everything else, who's mm -hmm. making sure the kids are taken care of, the elderly parents are taken care of. Mm -hmm. And we have to understand that in a two-worker family, this, idea, this myth no longer works. So what can people do to address the fact that there is this unpaid work that women are doing more of mm -hmm. that they need to be able to get done because it's also important that our cultural values cannot be focused on what makes more ideal workers and then we ignore what's happening at home. We ignore what's happening with our young people and our elderly. Mm -hmm. We ignore what's happening with our families. That's just not feasible. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole set of values that is not sustainable as a culture. Mm -hmm. So I read about one company, a, a large international company, that without using the word gender, just decided that they were no longer going to value FaceTime as a way of evaluating their employees, but they would simply evaluate them on the outcome of their work. 
their productivity. The reaction to this was split along gender lines. Mm -hmm. Women adored it, right? They had the flexibility to move the laundry along, mm -hmm. right? And still make the call to the client, get the business done and keep their families running. And again, men are doing some of this work, but not as much. Whereas the men felt it didn't, it didn't work for them. Mm -hmm. Because, and going back to this idea of people saying, well, people who work harder make more money, or men saying, I work harder, I put in more hours, I should make more money. The fact is that when you strip it down to accomplishment or productivity, just showing up isn't more valuable. Mm -hmm. But it's one of the ways that we have these, these biases that contribute to mm -hmm. the idea of the gender gap. If you look at the numbers, men do put in slightly more hours in the office than women. It's about an hour and a half more per week mm -hmm. on average. And when I look at the whole system, I have to look at the system that includes all the work that is being done. And on a societal level, we can't afford to think about just ideal workers. We have to think about everybody in our in our culture, all the genders, all the races, all the ages. 